The right wing has attempted to stifle all discussion about racism in classrooms and in history textbooks by loudly arguing that America is not evil, America is not racist. But for millions who are looking at the systemic racial inequality in this country, it's bringing back those questions about the history of oppression. How do we explain the persistence of racism today? What is it going to take to end it? America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Welcome to another episode of Socialist Revolution Podcast. I'm Antonio, I'm an editor at socialistrevolution.org, and today's episode is based on a session at this year's Montreal Marxist Winter School, where we discussed the polarized debate over critical race theory, the history of the mass struggles against racism in the U.S., and the fight against racism today. At first glance, to take up the question of the right-wing frenzy over critical race theory might appear to be a bit of an odd choice. I don't think any of us are particularly interested in what's happening on right-wing cable news outlets like Fox News or the reactionary propaganda that comes out of the mouth of Donald Trump or other Republican politicians. Although this is more than just the right-wing frenzy. It's, it's a wave of laws directly affecting teachers and what they can and can't say in the classroom. In the last year, 137 bills have been proposed across 35 states to restrict teachers from talking about issues like racism or other forms of oppression in U.S. history. The Republican governor of Virginia actually set up a hotline for parents to report teachers if they were teaching inappropriate subjects. One online group of conservative mothers in New Hampshire offered a $500 bounty for any parent that catches a teacher teaching about racism. That group was called Moms for Liberty, if you can believe that. In some states like Florida, similar legislation has been proposed that requires teachers to teach the evils of communism. It's not just a question of racism. You know, in the state of Indiana, there are two competing bills being proposed. One of them would force teachers to teach that Marxism, communism, and socialism are detrimental to the people of the U.S. and incompatible with freedom. The other bill proposes to ban all talk of anti-American ideologies. It doesn't define what that is, but it would make it illegal to even ask that question in the classroom and have that conversation. Books are being banned in hundreds of public school libraries across the country. So you can sense the fear in all this legislation, a real frenzy to stop a discussion from happening. But today's topic isn't really so much about what's happening on the right. It's about something broader that's taking place nationally. The mass movement against racism and police terror that was sparked by the murder of George Floyd in 2020 was referred to as a national reckoning. That experience has left its mark on the consciousness of the entire living generation of the working class. And I'm convinced that when the socialist revolution erupts in North America, the workers that participate in that revolution are going to remember the events of the summer of 2020. And the ruling class, the capitalists, their generals are also going to recall the memory of those events. 
that's our starting point. And, and that, you know, 2020 provides the context for this entire discussion. It's been just 20 months since, uh, since that summer. I think we all still have a pretty clear memory. Those events not only swept across the U.S., it also spilled over the border into Canada. It spread to 60 other countries. And for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, those days of protests were life-changing. That was the closest we've come as a living generation to living through a revolutionary situation in the U.S. 26 million people came out into the streets, 10% of the adult population. There were at least 7,750 recorded protests affecting practically every city from coast to coast. Tens of thousands of military troops were deployed across 30 states. 200 cities enacted curfew. Tear gas was used against protesters in over 100 cities. At least 14,000 people were arrested. We'll never know exactly how many were brutalized and injured. An open split developed between military generals and the president over whether to mobilize the army itself using the Insurrection Act of 1807. And of course, Trump himself was forced to go into hiding in his underground bunker below the White House. But I think the most astounding statistics have to do with the degree of public support that these protests had. Many of these were open confrontations with the state. At the height of the movement in early June 2020, three quarters of the population supported the mass movement. 78% of Americans felt the anger that led to the protest was justified. The protests were backed by a 60% majority of white people and even a 53% majority of Republicans. You know, in those days, they were organizing polls, and respondents were pretty evenly split on whether they characterized the protests as, quote, mostly peaceful or mostly violent. But even among those who called the protests mostly violent, 54% of them supported the protests. And among the general population, 54% saw justification in the torching of the Minneapolis police precinct. I think these scenes naturally call up historical parallels with the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. One difference is not only that 2020 was unprecedented in the size of the protests, but also in the size of its support. Never in U.S. history, not before or after the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement, has there been that degree of solidarity among people of all colors against racism and police terror. That fact makes 2020 a world historic turning point and a turning point in the struggle against racism, which deserves to be analyzed in its historic context. That's the history that we really want to get into. Well, during those demonstrations, a number of Democratic Party politicians attempted to co-opt the movement by making symbolic statements of support. Really, these were empty gestures. They were promising police reform. But the real priority of both ruling class parties was to get people off the streets. And as soon as the protests died down, those promises were promptly forgotten, the talk of reform vanished, and the presidential elections continued their route. Both parties attempted to present an image of having defended law and order, especially the Democrats. That was their message in 2020. So the largest mass movement in the country's history was left with zero political support by either ruling party, who essentially treated it like it had never happened. But of course, the movement wasn't forgotten by the millions who participated and watched it unfold. It unleashed something deep in society, these deep sentiments of solidarity 
in the struggle and debates about the nature of racism, the nature of the history of, of oppression in the United States. And from the perspective of the ruling class, it was necessary to get a grip on these debates, to try and cut across those sentiments of solidarity, especially for the right wing. You know, as far as Trump was concerned, a large section of his base was wavering. At the height of the movement, even a majority of Trump's party felt that sense of human injustice in the light of George Floyd's public murder. The rise of this right-wing frenzy over critical race theory is Trump's deliberate, calculated answer to June 2020. It's a desperate attempt to change the topic, to get people to forget about the mass struggle in the streets and to reframe the discussion about racism. And the mass media outlets across the bourgeois political spectrum have joined in this effort. They've sold us a story about the U.S. being swept up in a culture war, a struggle to define the identity and values of the country. We're being told that the U.S. is, is split down the middle by the right and the left. And how do they define these two camps? Well, on the right, it's pretty clear. It's Trumpism. It's traditional conservatism. It's uh, the reactionary whitewashing of U.S. history. It's prejudices. It's, it's thinly veiled racism presenting it all as a triumph of freedom and liberty for all. We know the story. But on the left, at least according to cable news, it's not that they're reporting the rise of revolutionary socialism. They don't report the fact that 38 million young people have a positive view of Marxism in the U.S. Or the fact that we're seeing a, a growing strike wave, a mass effort to unionize companies like Starbucks and Amazon. Instead, they describe the rise of the far left as the rising influence of identity politics. For the bourgeois media, the, the far left is represented by cancel culture, by academic theories like critical race theory. Now, does identity politics have rising political influence? Without a doubt. You can see it, not only in American universities, but all over the world. But that was by no means the main social force we saw in the streets in 2020. And when we look at the incredible leftward radicalization among young people in the U.S., what we see is an interest in revolutionary ideas, precisely inspired by the mass struggle against racism and other factors like the climate crisis. Above all, we see a desire to fight back. It's not a burning interest in the ideas that came out of 1980s academia. Besides putting forward the boogeyman of CRT as a powerful radical conspiracy, which the right wing associates with Marxism, this bourgeois propaganda campaign has had another byproduct, and that is that it's, it's bringing up questions about the history of this country, the nature of systemic racism. It's bringing that history to life. The, one of the first things that Trump did was to announce the first ever White House conference on American history. He argued that the mass movement was left-wing mobs trying to destroy the country and he said it was the direct result of decades of left-wing indoctrination in schools that attempted to make students ashamed of their history. He specifically named CRT and defined it as a Marxist doctrine holding that America is a wicked and racist nation and that our entire society must be radically transformed. The right wing has attempted to stifle all discussion about racism in classrooms and in history textbooks by loudly arguing that America is not evil, America is not racist. But for millions who are looking at the systemic racial inequality in this country, it's bringing back those questions about the history of, of oppression. 2020 naturally brought certain questions to the forefront of, of mass consciousness. How do we explain 
the persistence of racism today. What is it going to take to end it? And it's absolutely true that without understanding that history, we can't really explain the present. Without understanding the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, we can't explain the state of racism and racial inequality properly in the 2020s. But then you have to go back further because you can't understand the civil rights movement without understanding what happened after the Civil War, the rise and defeat of Reconstruction. We don't have time for a, a detailed history about this topic. That's a, a topic for another discussion and several forthcoming articles and, and podcasts. But I do want to mention a few of the key points that show what this history looks like. Because I think this history, the history of the mass struggle against racism as a class struggle, as a revolutionary struggle, really is at the heart of the debate that we're talking about. What is the nature of racism and oppression in the United States? Well, obviously, a starting point could be the Civil War itself. 250 years of chattel slavery were ended by a revolution that involved the armed uprising of the former enslaved people. Marx and Engels considered this revolution to be the most burning issue of their time, and they wrote hundreds of articles about the war. They followed its every twist and turn in their personal correspondence. You might have heard of Marx's letter to Abraham Lincoln congratulating him for his re-election and raising the slogan, Death to Slavery. Well, when the war ended, Marx wrote a statement on behalf of the General Council of the First International addressed to the American people. And it was a statement of congratulations for ending the horrific brutality of slavery. It also contained a warning about the tasks ahead, the tasks of reconstruction. He called for full rights for the four million formerly enslaved people. He said, If you fail to give them citizens' rights while you demand citizens' duties, there will yet remain a struggle for the future, which may again stain your country with your people's blood. He continues, We warn you, as brothers in the common cause, to remove every shackle from freedom's limb, and your victory will be complete. Now, if we look at the events immediately following the Civil War, if we look at the decade of Reconstruction, especially Radical Reconstruction, it would appear that society was being completely transformed. There's a reason Reconstruction was even called a Second Civil War. After the armed overthrow of the slave owners, freed black people took their destiny into their hands. Not only had they risked their lives to flee the Confederate territories, but hundreds of thousands of them took up arms and they fought in the war. They were overwhelmingly armed and organized. And afterwards, this was a period of incredible progress towards democratic and civil rights. Black men were given the right to vote. Women wouldn't get the right to vote until half a century later, years after it was achieved by the Russian Revolution. But nevertheless, this was an enormous development. And in the course of that decade, from the late 1860s to the late 1870s, some 2,000 black men were elected to state and federal positions. Measures were taken to abolish racial segregation in the federal government, as well as in many public spaces throughout the South. Public education was established for the first time in the South. You had a massive campaign of building hundreds of schools, hiring thousands, 10,000 teachers were hired. And of course, these radical changes benefited poor whites as well. So did the voting rights, because they abolished property qualifications and poll taxes, which had stopped poor whites from voting as well. In addition to hundreds of schools, around 50 hospitals were built throughout the South during Reconstruction. And there were some measures toward land reform 
to divide up plantations among freed men, although the majority of these measures were rolled back by Andrew Jackson after the, the assassination of Lincoln. When white terror organizations like the KKK were set up by former Confederate officers to intimidate and attack blacks, they fought with armed resistance, backed by federal troops. Klansmen had their rights suspended, and they were prosecuted sometimes by black-majority juries. In South Carolina, where black people won two-thirds of legislative seats in the state government, the KKK was actually wiped out. It was completely eliminated in that state by 1871, until it was reestablished in 1915. If you consider the scope of all of these changes, in other words, while the workers of Paris were seizing power and storming heaven, you can see that something similar was happening throughout the South. A major difference being the property question. Radical Reconstruction achieved incredible advances, but it stayed within the limits of capitalist property, which meant that land and capital was in the hands of the white former slave owners. And just like the Paris Commune, this short but glorious period was ended by a bloody counter-revolution. In 1876, there was a highly contested presidential election. Just like in 2020, troops were deployed to protect the Capitol building. And finally, U.S. Congress made a deal to remove federal troops from the South in exchange for Republican control of the White House. The Northern capitalists had succeeded in their aim of replacing slavery with wage labor, so they basically handed political power in the South back to the Southern capitalist class. And this turned the Southern U.S. back into a dictatorship of the former slave owners, who unleashed racist terror and rolled back the gains of that period. Slavery had been abolished by the 13th Amendment, but it was brought back in new forms such as sharecropping and convict leasing. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a masterpiece on this period, it's called Black Reconstruction in America, with a chapter called Back to Slavery. He says, the slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. It was an agonizing counter-revolutionary defeat and a complete social reversal. Most of the measures of the civil rights movement of the 1960s had been achieved a century earlier, only to be eliminated by the ruling class when they betrayed Reconstruction. The Supreme Court in particular was an instrument of counter-revolution. It interpreted the Reconstruction-era laws in very narrow ways that eliminated all of their substance, turned them into empty symbols. So that was the beginning of 90 years of the Jim Crow regime, of segregation and institutional racism. After 250 years of slavery, which created the foundation for the wealth of the U.S. and its position as a major imperialist power, black people were subjected to another century of inhuman oppression. During this period, organizations of white racist terror like the KKK were intermingled with law enforcement, business, and local government throughout the South. While the Russian working class was overthrowing the Tsar and taking power, the U.S. White House was inhabited by an open supporter of the KKK. Woodrow Wilson. Black people were lynched, terrorized, prevented not only from voting but from exercising practically any kind of freedom. Segregation of public spaces meant that black people couldn't go to the same schools, restaurants, parks, libraries. They couldn't use the same drinking fountains, bathrooms, entrances, sit in the same sections of public transportation. There was segregation of housing 
that prevented black people from purchasing homes through all kinds of legal racist policies like redlining, banks denied loans and mortgages to black people and forced them into predatory contracts from lending companies that confined them to impoverished neighborhoods. And this meant that black people had worse conditions, worse infrastructure, schools, worse transportation. There was a racial division of labor, which confined black people to worse jobs, horrible wages, higher unemployment. There were laws prohibiting interracial marriage, not just in the South, but all over the country. 30 states had these laws, many of which were still in place until 1967. So this was the picture of the U.S. at the time of the last civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. The period of Jim Crow leading up to World War II saw multiple waves of migration out of the South. Millions of black families moved into cities in the North and the West, and they became part of the industrial working class. They became proletarianized. This is called the Great Migration. And so the civil rights movement was a mass struggle that linked the fight against Jim Crow to the social demands of the black working class. In fact, the earliest mass effort at integration after the defeat of Reconstruction was the rise of industrial trade unionism led by communists. Before that, the narrow craft unions were mostly organizing the upper layers of the working class, the more conservative and more prejudiced layers. But the fight to organize industrial workers meant uniting all workers across color lines. Those battles around the rise of the CIO set the stage for the civil rights movement. Another major factor was the discontent of black soldiers returning from World War II and suffering the same discrimination as before. You know, this was one of the triggers of the mass upsurge. One figure in this period was A. Philip Randolph. He was a, a black socialist who had been an early supporter of the Russian Revolution. In Harlem in the 20s and during First World War, he actually launched a publication, a mass paper called The Messenger, which the Justice Department at the time considered the most dangerous black publication in the country. It was a publication that agitated against the war and it supported the Bolsheviks. He also was the founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was one of the first major black unions. Well, in the 1940s, he used mass mobilizations and the threat of a mass march on Washington to force the federal government to pass the first civil rights legislation since the end of Reconstruction. The earliest shots of the civil rights wave took place at the initiative of black workers organized in the labor movement. But of course, the major battles of the 50s and 60s were what produced some of the most iconic images of that period. The mass marches, the pickets, the mass resistance in the face of police terror, in the face of violent terror of white racists. Images of racist cops attacking protesters with dogs, water cannons, batons. I think those struggles take on a new light after the experience of so many protesters facing that brutal repression in 2020. Major battles included the year-long Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 and 56, where Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King became national figures. There were the freedom rides throughout the South, where protesters traveled from city to city physically defying segregation in public transportation and in public spaces in the face of violent racist resistance. You had the massive march on Washington for jobs and freedom in 1963, 
where Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech in front of a quarter of a million people. This was also a period of a sharp uptick in the class struggle. From 1967 to 1971, the number of workers who participated in strikes doubled. And after years of heroic mass struggle by black workers and youth, as well as by the labor movement and a section of the white working class, the result was a formal end to Jim Crow. This was legally achieved through a wave of legislation after the 1954 ruling of the Supreme Court, Brown versus Board of Education, which ended segregation in public schools on paper. You had the Civil Rights Acts of 1957, 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. So voting rights were restored, segregation of public schools and spaces was abolished, discrimination in the workplace and in housing was made illegal, and this period has been called a second reconstruction. With nearly a century delay, it restored most of what had been achieved and then destroyed after the first reconstruction. And yet, this too was a limited victory. The glaring difference between equality on paper, equality before the law, and genuine equality in life revealed the shortcomings of the civil rights movement. Because the legal forms of racist equality, the Jim Crow laws, were not the root of that inequality. They were a supporting structure for upholding it. But the social and material, the economic component of inequality, the property question, was never uprooted. I think this is a very important question for revolutionary socialists to understand today when we talk about how systemic racism is hardwired into capitalism to this very day. Look at the housing question. 90 years of racist laws concentrated black people into the poorest neighborhoods of major cities and prevented them from buying homes. That meant that obviously the family assets of black families didn't appreciate with the home values, the property values. Ending those racist laws didn't reverse the effects of inequality. It didn't provide people with houses or savings. So major cities remain largely segregated to this day. The gap in home ownership between whites and blacks has remained unchanged since 1960. The same can be said for the gap in average wealth between white and black families since the 60s. It's basically stayed the same. And since housing segregation by neighborhood determines basic funding for school districts and infrastructure, poor black neighborhoods have underfunded schools and hospitals. None of the civil rights legislation ever fixed that. 70% of black people in the U.S. live in counties with really high levels of pollution that exceed federal standards. You know, for example, the area of Detroit, Michigan, has one of the largest garbage incinerators in the U.S. that's been burning garbage from across the Midwest since the 1980s. And 87% of the residents living within a mile of the incinerator are black. It's a hotspot for respiratory diseases like asthma. This is an, a picture of the structural inequality that was never repaired. At the end of the civil rights movement, this reality was very apparent. And the struggle had left a lot of people asking, where do we turn now? We tried this route of legal reform. It didn't succeed. So what other route is there? And when that kind of question is asked on a wide scale, that's an important moment in the class struggle. We know how the most militant leaders of the civil rights movement answer that question. 
they all moved in the direction of revolutionary class struggle, which posed a serious danger to the ruling class. So much so that in every case, these figures were repressed and assassinated one by one. Malcolm X was killed in 1965 after breaking with the black Muslim tradition and taking a fundamentally anti-capitalist position. He explained that racism wouldn't exist if it wasn't profitable. You can't have capitalism without racism. He said, you show me a capitalist and I'll show you a bloodsucker. I was reading in the Washington Post an article about gentrification today, and they quote a researcher who explains how black and Latino neighborhoods are being displaced. To quote him, it says, real estate developers are looking for areas of the city where they can buy low and sell high. They want to maximize their return. This is not a conspiracy. This is capitalism. These issues bring back the, the words of Martin Luther King when he said, you can't talk about solving the economic problems of black people without talking about billions of dollars. You can't talk about ending the slums without first saying profit must be taken out of the slums. Then you're getting on dangerous ground because you're messing with capitalist interests. And he was. Martin Luther King was killed in 1968 while supporting striking sanitation workers in Memphis, also after having moved toward a class analysis. Fred Hampton, one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party, was killed in 1969, the very following year, shot by the FBI at the age of 21 while lying in his bed. His position was, we're not going to fight against racism with racism. We're going to fight against racism with solidarity. We're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism. We're going to fight it with socialism. He called for an international proletarian revolution. Each of these figures went through a political evolution that led them to the same conclusion that their fight against racism could only succeed as a fight against capitalism. And therefore, the fight requires revolutionary class solidarity across all color lines. And if you consider the circumstances of both of these mass struggles that we've looked at, the period of Reconstruction, if you like the second wave of Reconstruction, they both went into an impasse because they left capitalist property intact. So when it comes to the right-wing debate about the role of racism in the United States, this is our reply. Yes, that oppression is at the very heart of this society. It's in its very foundation. Capitalism has racism in its very DNA. And the primitive accumulation of capital in the U.S., the start that it got as a participant in the world economy, rests on centuries of slavery, followed by generations of racist oppression to this very day. The invention of ideas about racial superiority and inferiority, that was an ideological creation of capitalism, a tool to justify its exploitation of enslaved labor despite upholding bourgeois values. So, yes, we need a complete transformation of society in order to uproot that, a socialist revolution. We're completely opposed to the reactionary attacks on teachers from the right wing, and we should fight any attempts to restrict their teaching. I think at the same time, we should keep in mind that the radicalization taking place among the youth, it's not happening in the classrooms. It's happening on the streets, in the workplaces. It's happening online. It's happening at home. It's life under capitalism that's leading tens of millions of young people to become interested in revolutionary ideas. And despite all the attempts of the right, we know that the debates over the legacy of racism, of oppression, 
those debates are not going to be silenced by that legislation. In fact, they're going to intensify. If we set aside the frenzy of the right wing and we turn our attention to critical race theory itself and try to strip away the myths to analyze the real body of ideas from academics who identify as part of the CRT movement, we can see that the impasse of the 60s and 70s gave rise to very different political conclusions. Some of them, as we've seen, in the direction of revolution and class struggle, but others in a very different direction. And the rise of CRT represents a trend that turned in an opposite direction. While the Panthers and, and Malcolm X, and to a certain degree Martin Luther King, moved toward class-conscious, anti-capitalist conclusions, like you can't end racism without also ending capitalism, CRT was born from the conclusion that you can't end racism, that racism is a permanent feature of American society. That was the conclusion of a civil rights lawyer turned Harvard law professor, Derek Bell, who is considered the founding father of CRT. He had witnessed the shortcomings of legal battles, and his conclusion was that racism would never be eliminated. This fight could never succeed. Instead of finding class interests as the obstacle behind the persistence of social inequality, though, what CRT found was race interests. It said that the fight against racism failed because white people are too determined to maintain inequality. Instead of concluding that a mass struggle across color lines to overthrow the capitalist system was necessary, it concluded that the law upheld and perpetuated white interests and that racism persists because white people as a group are the dominant social force in society and they're unwilling to let go of the privileges they get. The rise of CRT as a more influential academic movement happened in the 80s around a series of conferences by law students and professors. And many of them had come from a tradition of critical legal studies that aimed to expose prejudice and inequality in the law and justice system. It explained that the law was basically a political process. But CRT rejected critical legal studies because they thought it emphasized class too much. And instead of putting the question of class inequality forward, they felt that the question of racism should be put at the heart of everything. That was the shift to CRT. And it also became much more idealist. It borrowed from the postmodern trends that were becoming dominant in the universities in that period. Kimberly Crenshaw, the founder of intersectionality theory, is actually one of the figures that led this campaign. So oppression became something very individual, something based on identities that gave every person a unique place in a complex web of social power. The truth is that the class struggle vanished completely from this framework. Even class became a very individual question of identity, of social attitudes, but class interests never entered the equation. And as for the idea of overthrowing capitalism, you may as well be talking in a totally different language. You may as well be on a different planet. It never entered this body of thought. If you think about this period, that pessimistic direction of thinking had a lot of momentum behind it. After the wave of revolutionary movements in the 60s came a wave of pessimism among left-wing intellectuals in the universities. People who threw up their hands and said, the revolution failed because the workers aren't an agent of revolution anymore. 
The rise of CRT delivered a similar message. People will never unite against racism. And the prevalence of privileged politics that we see today is a modern outgrowth of these ideas, of that philosophical framework. What we need is a revolutionary fight to uproot racism. You know, while fighting the right-wing attacks and explaining the role of racism at the heart of capitalism and U.S. history, in relation to CRT, I think the most important question is, is this a tool that can aid the revolutionary struggle against racism? Is it going to be useful for the objective of transforming society? And I think our answer is simply no. That's not what the tool was created for. That's not what it's intended for. As with every other offshoot of the new left and the postmodern turn in academia, the conclusion is always, the world is broken and we don't have the answers. But even more than that, I'd say that the kind of identity politics that has dominated and permeated the academic field of race studies and it's spread beyond campuses into mainstream culture, it's not a tool for fighting racism. It works against that fight because it cuts across revolutionary class consciousness by presenting all white people, regardless of their class, as the dominant group at the top of a hierarchy. If your starting point is that all white people benefit from racism and uphold it, and that they must acknowledge this privilege and rectify it as individuals, then uprooting racial inequality through a material restructuring of society is impossible. Identity politics tells white people to look inside themselves and find their internal white supremacist prejudices, and that's the explanation for the source of racism. If you have a different starting point, which is that racial inequality is the bloody legacy of capitalist exploitation, and that the working class can overthrow that system through united action, then you have a way to fight. Now, it's true that that solidarity has not always been present among the majority of the working class in the U.S. That's a fact. It's a tragic fact that there's been so much racist prejudice throughout history. And that's been one of the largest obstacles in the development of the class struggle in this country. But the millions who poured into the streets of this country in June 2020 were a perfect composition, a perfect reflection of the racial makeup of the U.S. population. The George Floyd uprising showed a glimpse of the new generation of the working class, and it showed that the instrument of racial prejudice is weaker than at any time since it was first created by the capitalist class. June 2020 was a perfect example of what a mass struggle on the basis of solidarity looks like. Our starting point for the struggle against racism is that it is a central part of the fight for socialism in our lifetime. A poll last year found that 60% of black Americans have a positive view of socialism. And just as black workers and youth have always been at the vanguard of the struggles against racism and for working class unity and solidarity, the black working class is destined to play a central role in the coming revolutionary transformation of society. The overthrow of American capitalism and the formation of a workers' government wouldn't automatically mean erasing the legacy of racism, but it would be the beginning of the end, because it would mean finally tackling all the material and economic roots of inequality. It would mean workers of all backgrounds collaborating to plan the economy and raise everyone's living standards dramatically. The third American Revolution, I think we can say, will usher in a third period of Reconstruction, more radical, more thorough 
more transformative than any previous mass struggle for black liberation. And only in that way, by expropriating the capital of the ruling class, built by centuries of slavery, colonialism, exploitation, and oppression, only by building a world of true social equality on the basis of economic abundance, only through a socialist revolution can the crimes of racism be repaired.